0: Well, chapter 10 is, again, it's an interesting thing as you read Revelation. We we started uh, off with the seven seals, and we got six of them, and then it's all of a sudden we had a prelude of a chapter sort of going back, saying, hey, here's some information you need to know about in the tribulation period. And then it gave us the seventh seal, which really opened up seven trumpets. And we get to the, we think, going to get to the seventh trumpet and... Then we have another prelude. And here tonight in chapter 10 is one of those interludes. Those uh, saying, hey, here's some information you need to know of what's going on during that three and a half year period. So, um, and I, I would dare say chapter 10 and 11 are really the uh, hinges of the book of Revelation almost in the middle. Uh, well, is in the middle of Revelation. And... Um, Again, if you're going to look at literature in its proper form, then you're gonna. I think you're gonna come to the right conclusions in the Bible. You know, people sometimes say you can make the Bible say anything. Well, if you don't use, you know, as you're you're reading the newspaper, if you're reading through the. If you would the daily news section, you would look at that as literal. But then when you go to the funny pages, you read that in a way, right? You go to the Ann Lander section, the commentary. I mean, each section have its way of looking at it, depending on the literature you're looking at. So the Bible has historical uh, section, but then it also has a poetic section. So uh, we, we understand that when we're reading, uh, you know, the Song of Solomon or Psalms. And, and we, we understand we're, we're not we're reading something that's literature. And, and, uh, and then the, the prophetic stuff, we, we understand that that's a foretelling of events. And so we take these things into account. And so there are some that want to take the book of Revelation and say it was all fulfilled back in AD 70. In the destruction of Jerusalem, into of story. So what we're reading here is a poetic way of describing what happened in A.D. 70. And um, really, when you, you come to chapter 10 and 11, you really see it magnify itself because you have to do a lot of fancy footwork to not make these chapters say what they're saying. And again, as we've gone through this, we, we've seen things, and we're going to see it tonight, when it says something is like something, then it's not that. It's telling you it's it's similar, but not that. But when it's saying it's that, then it's that. And this is no problem. So if we just take it literally, um, and then again, take the, the type of literature that's being spoke of in its context, um, it makes perfect sense. And so... In chapter 10 here, it says, I saw still another mighty angel. Now, we talked about the word angel also meaning messenger. And we definitely see times in the Bible where it says angel, and it's clearly God. Um, And uh, I'm not going to repeat that. I've talked about that before. And uh, so as we read on here, I I think it's a pretty clear picture of Jesus. Jesus. And some say, well, no, it's not Jesus. It's a mighty angel. It could be either way. But as you go on, you'll see some descriptions that we don't see anywhere else in the Bible of an angel. But we do see that description of Jesus. And so it says, uh, another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. Uh, We see that before with God, just Shekinah glory, like a cloud coming down. And the rainbow was on his head. His face was like, here it is, the sun. We have that picture of Jesus uh, earlier in Revelation, matter of fact. And his feet like pillars of fire. And he had a little book open in his hand. Now Jesus, earlier, was the only one who was able to take the scroll. And some see this here now as sort of a, a shrink down version of the scroll or um, a partial of this scroll and he opened in his hand and he set in his right foot, notice on the sea, and his left foot on the land. So this person is clearly in power over all the earth, land and sea. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars... And he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. And a matter of fact, in Psalm 29, we have God speaking seven thunders. It's a beautiful psalm. Um, But God is speaking out in thunder, and there's seven thunders of God's voice in Psalm 29. And and most of the book of Revelation, remember, is repeating the Old Testament. And we're going to see that here tonight as well. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but when I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them down. So, you know, it's, it's sort of fun because there's, there's, we're going to get to heaven and, and we get to sit down with Jesus and say, what, what's going on here? And, and it tells us that we're going to know all things even as we are known. That we and we are in our brand new bodies with the Lord he's going to hold nothing back but now as Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says the secret things belong to the Lord but the things that he's revealed to us are to us and our children forever and ever but there are some things that the Lord's holding back and, and uh, I, I think it's just sort of in me it's like anticipation it's like what you know I'm, my curiosity just goes way up but, but this, is a, this is an important point. Because remember in Revelation and all through the Bible, it says, do not add to or take away from. And in Revelation in particular, it says, do not add to or take away from unless God adds all these tribulations upon you in judgment. And why is that? Because when we're dealing with prophecy, what God reveals to us is causing us to go in a certain direction. So he lets us know the future and it causes us to think, feel, act, make choices right here because of what we know is going to happen up there. And so, if we don't get the prophetic picture right out there, we're not going to feel, think, make the choices correctly here. And that's why, again, I, I just think it's so important that when people try to say, well, the Bible, you know, it's in its own category. No, stop that. The Bible is to be treated like any other book. You well, hold it. it is God's word, in it? Yes, it is God's word. But again, this is this is how all of the religions in the world be, become mythical and and lose their credence and their power because only you know certain people can read the magic book and tell you what it really says. The Mormons, you know, Joseph Smith said he found the the Book of Mormon and it was in hieroglyphics and, and he found a pair of glasses that were the humum and the thermum and, and as he put them on, he could then translate it. You know, that, That's exactly what the people who, who, who want to put down the Bible, they love. And of course, in, in 1980, it came back to the Catholic Church saying, can people other than priests have a Bible in their hand and read it? And it was shot down, absolutely no. So on the books, worldwide, only Catholic priests are to have a Bible. They don't want the commoner. of course, that was Martin Luther when he, he put his 99 thesis on the Wittenberg door. that was at the top of the list that everybody should have a Bible in their own language in their own hands. Now, the point that the priests make is very good, is that now every Tom, Dick and Harry can come up with their own interpretation of the Bible. Or I guess in German, you know, Schwitz and, you know, Gulov. I don't, I don't know. But um, the fact is, though, if we all say the Bible is to be handled like any other book, so the historical book is to be treated like any historical book, the poetic part is to be treated like a poetic part, then, then we all will come up with the same Interpretation. And so, again, when we're, we're dealing with the Scripture here, and, and this is imagery, and, and you say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. No, it's not. It's, it's a perfect form of communication, just like hyperbole is. Again, if I, if I give an obvious exaggeration, it stirs the emotions. So if Jesus says, you know, if you stumble a little believer, it'd be better to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye. It's an obvious exaggeration. He's not saying to go cut off your hand. The world will know you because you have one hand and one eye. You'll know you're Christians by that fact. No, it's an it's obvious exaggeration. It's a perfect form of communication. We do it. I was going to say we do it all the time, but that would be doing that, exaggerating. Uh, we don't do it all the time, but we do it. And so again here, um, God has given us things to understand, to know, and other things he's left out. And we know that. As we read through the Bible, we're like, but, but, I got this question. And it's like, ah, oh, the Bible doesn't give the same answer. But then you have the theologians who write their 1,500-page book, and they give you the answer, you know? And the fact is, we have to get comfortable with just saying, we don't know. God didn't tell us. And the fact that he didn't tell us is important. Because having that piece of information would change how we think and live right now. And not giving us that piece of information, although it's frustrating, and although the critics are saying, ah, you don't have the answer to this, um, it's okay. You know, for example, somebody will say, well, what about somebody who's never heard of Jesus? And they die never knowing about Jesus dying on the cross for their sins. How is God going to judge them? And the Bible doesn't answer that. It does say in John 5 all judgment's given unto Jesus. We do see in the Bible that God's just and fair and right. Well, how is He going to judge them? He is going to judge them righteously, in love, the way it should be. How I don't know how that's going to be done. Well, there you go. There's a since you can't answer that question, you know, Christianity therefore has to be thrown away. Ridiculous. The fact is, is you're not somebody who's never heard about Jesus. You're not the person who died in the you know jungle without ever hearing about Jesus dying on the cross raising again. You are accountable. And the Bible does make it clear that people are accountable according to the light they have. And uh, so, again, how is God going to judge him? We don't know. So there's those little things that, again, I'd like to know the answer to. And one day we're going to get the answer. But until then, we just have to come right here and say, God not telling us is is as important as what God does tell us. And, uh, you know, Mark Twain was asked the question, you know, this very question, you know, what about... uh, parts of the Bible that you don't understand. And he said, I'm I'm just bothered about the parts of the Bible I do understand because I I realize I'm not right with God. If the Bible's correct, I'm in trouble. And uh, that's the facts, is that we are accountable for the parts of the Bible we understand. And also, we are all accountable before God to study, to show ourselves approved, a workman unto God, to rightly divide the word of truth. And you say, well, the Gutenberg Press was built 500 years ago. Before that, people didn't have Bibles in their own hands. It was in scrolls and churches, and it's true. But also, think of it, that the Bible tells us as we come closer and closer to the last days that we need to know all of the scripture more and more. The fact is, is 500 years ago, they really didn't need to know the book of Revelation like we need to know it now. And so, uh, God is faithful, isn't he? To, to make sure that throughout the world, you know, and it's so funny. I remember years ago seeing in a National Geographic, um, you know, people in the jungle, you know, with their little pygmy outfits on and, uh, you know, they're there with their spears and you're, oh, these people are out there in the jungle. And then there's a big giant satellite dish and they were watching Dallas, you know. (laughs) And I'm just going, oh, this does not compute. Um, And the fact of the matter is, you know, throughout the world now, the majority of the world, um, they can get the Bible on their... Technology, They can get preaching and teaching like no other time in history. And um, there is revival going on in places that you wouldn't expect it to be going on, such as in Iran right now. There's a great revival going on of people becoming Christians uh, by the thousands a day. And um, so anyway, it's, it's an exciting time to live in. Well, in verse 5, moving on. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives. And this is again, Jeremiah fifty one fourteen. It says, God swears by himself. So here he swears by him, Jesus, if it was Jesus, by his father forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it and earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants and the prophets. The word mystery, translated here, we do not have the same word as the word in Greek. Okay, for us, the word mystery, you know, we immediately think of a murder mystery, right? The whodunit, you know, the the classic, uh, you know, you're on the train and uh, the lights go out and somebody's dead and there's 12 people in the compartment, you know, who killed them and, you know, somebody puts on their Sherlock Holmes hat and their pipe and they try to deduct who, you know, that's the, the mystery. That's not the word. The word here is is just the revelation of. So for example, in in 1 Timothy 2, it says, great is the mystery of godliness. And then it goes on to describe a number of things. But God came in human flesh. So it wasn't something like, we figured out. Aha, there's a bunch of people. Ah, this one, he's God. You know, "Ah, how did you figure that out? You know, uh, it's not that way. It's the revelation. And so... From the beginning of time, God has revealed Himself to man. And if you really want to understand how much light we have today, go back and read the book of Genesis, and then read the life up to the life of Abraham, and add up how many things man knew. Up Through Abraham, when Abraham left the Uru Chaldees and came to Israel, I mean he what was revealed about God was so, so little it 's just astounding how he had faith in God with such a little bit of knowledge of God, but little by little, God has revealed himself. And um, and then it tells us in Hebrews 1, and now in these last days, it's no longer uh, through some indirect way, it's from His Son, Jesus Christ. And so now, the revelation of who God is. So when, you know, the whole idea, we're raptured out of here, or we die and we go to heaven, and it's not like, you know, the... Peter, you know, we're going to recognize him. Hey, Peter, yeah, okay. Uh, let me walk you through the pearly gates and let me introduce you, you know. Uh, yeah, you know, there's the restaurant and there's the toilet and there's a the shower. And, you know, I, I, I don't think that's what's going to happen. And, oh, by the way, you know, we, we got you on the, the, the schedule to meet Jesus. You know, and it's, we see Jesus and Brian's like, hey, I'm Brian, nice to meet you. Um, we, we've known him. That's the wonderful thing. The Bible makes it clear that we are going to be accountable to know him. And God, through his word, has given us the ability to know him, to know his heart, to know his mind, to know what he hates and to the degree he hates it, to know what he loves and to the degree he loves it, to know his preferences, his desires. We can know him. And we need to know Him. And, and it's really simple, guys. As you go through the Bible, the more you know Him, the more you'll love Him, the more you'll obey Him. You know, and in, in, in the distance between how little you know God and obeying God can become religion. So if I know little about God and I'm required to obey all of this, it's going to be this religious Reason I'm doing it. And, and you know, I, I don't, I mean, you can add up how many times I've mentioned the Catholic Church in 27 years. It's not that much, but uh, here's another perfect example. The Catholic Church doesn't teach the Bible to the people, they don't know much about God. And yet they require this obedience, and the people are are in darkness, just trying to do it out of this deep fear of God, and this deep loyalty, and and this deep tradition, and you know, you know, my mom and her dying words said, "Be a Catholic till you die," you know, and uh, so it's like ah, oh, you know, there's all kinds of bad reasons why they're trying to do good things, and it's it's that simple. If you're if you're married or If you have a best friend, you you know how that is. The more you know them, the good and the bad. All the different things. The deeper you know them until there's nothing hidden. There's an ability, that closeness, that intimacy. Out of that intimacy, you have a desire to please them. And that's exactly what God has done here. That we would know him. And of knowing him, we would love him, appreciate him, be thankful, and and we're wanting to please him. So when he's saying, obey me, it's not some religious reason. It's because of this deep, intimate relationship. And so here he's saying now, as they're coming into the tribulation period, that the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, it's finished. All that God was going to reveal to man on earth is Done. And there in verse 8, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel that stands at sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And then he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So here it is that, if you would, it's the word of God. What it, whatever that little book was, it was prophecy of the word of God. And I love this picture here because how true that is of much of the Bible. It's bitter to our human flesh. But yet it's so necessary. And if you go through the Bible and just look at it, the Bible has mostly negative truths. Man needs to repent. Man needs to turn from his evil ways. And so we we, we see that God desires to save him and give him eternal life, and it's sweet. But yet we've got to die to our flesh. We've got to lose our life in this world to gain it in the life to come. And it's always amazing how man wants to believe that every man is going to heaven and every man is right with God. And the fact is, is the Bible's very clear that most of man are unbelievers. Most of men are not submitted to God. And that's a bitter pill for all of us to eat, the lostness of man. And, you know, if you could go back to, to Eve, you know, as she's grabbing that fruit on the tree and say, Pause. Okay, Eve, sit over here. I want to w- show you a video for the next four hours. <laughs> show her World War One and World War Two and people getting blown up and stabbed and killed and blood everywhere and all the sin of the world and adultery and murder and rape and Okay, <laughs> do you really want to listen to that snake? Do you really want? I, I, and it's just to realize that. When man sinned, God said the day you eat of that, you will die. They didn't fall dead under that tree, but they brought death into the world. And along with that, he says there's going to be pain and sorrow and suffering, and there is. And um, the truth is a bitter pill. There's one way of salvation, and a man has to humble himself, confess that he's a sinner, repent, which means turn from that evil way, submit himself to God, which I believe is sweet. <laughs> but there is the bitter and the sweet. And, uh, and so here he, he, he takes the word of God. It's so sweet. I, I love the word of God. But much of the things that I need to say to the peoples, nations, tongues, and kings, oh, my stomach gets sour when I realize what I need to say to them. And what I need to say to them isn't, you know, some sweet little thing. If you have a neighbor that doesn't know Christ, or maybe you're getting rid of a family reunion <laughs> to a bunch of non-Christians, what happens in your stomach when you know you need to have witness to them? It's like, oh, I can't eat anything. My stomach's journeying. I don't feel so good. There's a bitterness there because you know the word of God to those people. And ultimately, it's it's a sweet word of eternal life, but the, 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 the first word is they need to turn from their wicked ways that they can be saved. Well, in verse chapter 11 here, then I was given a reed like the measuring rod. So remember, they didn't have tape measures like we do. They had uh, pieces of bamboo or something along that type of thing. That would be used, or sometimes they use their finger, or from their finger to their wrist, or their finger to their elbow. There were different ways they measured, and uh, typically um, the measuring rod here. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, again, this is where you come in. It doesn't say like a temple, it says the temple. Now some people again wanting to make this something that's written to the church and I believe as we saw metatauta uh, again uh, the church mentioned 18 times one more time in chapter 22 uh, up to chapter 3 and then metatauta in chapter 4 the word church isn't mentioned again. I believe the church is in heaven with the Lord and who is he writing to here? It's those mainly the house of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God being faithful to Israel to the end, but also to the Gentile believers of every tongue, nation, uh, of people. But they try to say, oh, the temple is the church, because in the New Testament, the Bible describes the church as the temple. Yes, it does. There's many different metaphors. The church is also the bride of Christ, and, and uh the church are living stones. I mean, there, there's, there's different analogies given to try to describe the church of God. And the temple is one of them. But again, I think temple is temple. I think altar is altar. And here he's describing the building of another Temple. And this is again the picture we see in Daniel. This is the picture we see in Second Thessalonians chapter two, where the antichrist, the man of lawlessness, will set himself in the holy of holies. You, you guys ever think about the Ark of the Covenant? It's just like a little piano bench, and then you have two cherubim facing each other, and it could be like the back of a chair. And again, it's like a chair. And this is where he sets himself and proclaims himself to be God. And so there is a temple. And so again, chapter 10 and 11, as it's going on into you know, the first year, third year, seventh year, hold it, let's come back. There's seven year tribulation period. I need to tell you, we're, chapter 10 and 11, we're gonna go back during this time that I've been talking about uh, the various things that God's gonna pour upon the earth and judgment Uh, of the sea and of the land and what's going on with the Antichrist and so forth I I need to back up and tell you that there is a temple being built during this time and there's an altar and a place of worship now um, when we take groups to Israel it's been a while we need to do it again there is in the Jewish quarter, that the old city of Jerusalem is broken up in different, you know, the Muslim quarter, the Christian quarter, and, and the Jewish quarter. And in that Jewish quarter, there's what's called the Temple Institute. And there's this group of guys that are called the, the faithful of the temple priest. And these guys for years have been constructing all the various things that priests would use all the different shovels and garments. And uh, a few years back, they were trying to get millions of dollars of gold to build the menorah. And uh, I remember uh, going back and talking to them a few, hey, how's that going? Done. I was like, whoa. And uh, they got these things stashed in secret places and so forth. But they say, they claim, they've got a group of priests again in a secret place, that they're teaching them how to go through all the sacrifices and they prove that they're sons of Levi and so forth. And now a DNA testing, uh, I think for sure they could uh, prove that. And uh, these guys are are ready to fill the temple up and get the priest going. So you're saying, oh, by the three and a half year mark, they're done and ready to dedicate this thing. It doesn't seem possible to get the temple built and to do that. Um, well, remember, the temple is a very small building itself. As a matter of fact, it's, it's much smaller than our sanctuary here. Um, it's rather tall, but it's only for the priest to go inside. It's not like people go inside there. It's just the priest go in to light the candles, eat a little bread off the table of bread, and leave. It's not like even a bunch of priests go in there. And then the Holy of Holies, uh, again, is just a tiny little spot where the high priest once a year would go in. And they claim to know where the ark is and so forth uh, as well. Um, for years, they claimed to have all these tunnels that go under and all of this and... and uh, I believed them, but now they actually have opened those tunnels. You can actually take tours. They call them the rabbi tunnels. And, of course, there's more digging that they go underneath the Temple Mount area. So if you see the welling wall, that's an outer wall of the temple. And they go drill underneath. And the Muslims up top on the Temple Mount area listen. And then they drill down and they pour cement and try to block them and so forth. But on the Temple Mount area right now is what's called the Dome of the Rock. It's this giant Muslim temple. And it was put there in uh, the 6th the century. And the Muslims during that time claimed that that's where uh, Muhammad left earth into the heaven and there's a rock there that, that comes up rather large that they say that's his footprint into the rock as he, he took off and so forth. And it's the third most holy site. And the Muslim world. And as we go on and read here in verse two, it says, as you're measuring the temple, leave out the court, which is the outside of the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. They will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, for three and a half years. So, you gotta realize that the majority of the Jews in the world They are either atheists or agnostics. They are not in any way, shape, form religious. They go to synagogue because it's tradition. It's like us having Thanksgiving. They don't believe the Bible. They don't even believe in God or anything else. And you talk to them, it's very clear. There's a very, 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 very small religious group of Jews And these guys are fanatical. And like I mentioned here, this Temple Institute guys, and they get together with others once a year. They get a big rock and they start running towards the temple and the Muslims get all upset and they get their Muslim police group together and they all fight for a little while and kick some dust up and they put it in paper and it's over. But they say one day, you know, the Messiah is going to help us take this rock up there and this is going to be the main stone that we build the temple from. But here's what's interesting. For years, Jews and the Muslims believed that they built the Dome of the Rock and I believe, just to frustrate the Jews, saying, it's our holy site. Wow, you Jews, get away. It never was your holy site. And when the Jews retook over Jerusalem in 67, they said, hey, you guys can have that. That's your site. You're trying to make peace. Didn't work, of course. But... That Dome of the Rock, if you look at it, it doesn't line up with the Eastern Gate, called the Golden Gate. Now, when the Muslims heard that Jesus was one day gonna come through the Eastern Gate, they have now rocked it all up and cemented it with bricks and they put a Muslim uh, graveyard in front of it so if Jesus did try to come through the Eastern Gate, he would become defiled. Um. But if you look at it right next door, in and there's a big giant cement area, there's a dome called the dome of the spirits, and if you look under it, it's a giant bedrock. And it lines up perfectly with the eastern gate. And if you look in the Talmud, and in the Talmud, the writings of the of the rabbis, there's in the Mishnah writings that say, after the temple was destroyed in the first century, they, they tried to write as much as they could about their memory of the temple so it wouldn't be lost. But they said, if you look, the Holy of Holies and all of the doors are opened up and you can look right out the eastern gate. It's perfectly lined up with that. And this Dome of the Spirits is lined up perfectly with that. Now, the whole ground area up there is sacred to the Muslims. And they got their police and their people, and if you try to hold your wife's hand, they'll, don't touch women, you know. And, and uh, you know, they, they're just real strict, religiously strict. You go down to the Jewish, they're all strict. They got the women separated from the men. They're all, they're all religiously strict. And they go up to the Muslims, they're all religiously strict. It's sort of bizarre for completely different reasons. And, um, but I believe when the Antichrist comes, remember he is setting up um, his headquarters in Babylon. Ancient in Iraq, Nazarene Iraq will be the headquarters of his military um, and of his religious and of his financial center. And so he's somehow, he's going to be a Jew I believe, but he's going to somehow appease the Muslims and the Muslims are going to love him. And he's somehow going to pull it off to build a wall and then to be able to build the temple and they can actually share that large area up there. And so he's saying, don't bother measuring the outside. Now, in Ezekiel 40 to 43, he's told to measure the temple, but he's told to measure the outside too. But that's a temple in the millennial reign. But this is a temple, I believe, that is built um, in in the tribulation period and Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24. When he I believe is talking to the Jews, he says, "Hey, here's the here's the thing you need to remember when the abomination of desolation takes place in Matthew 24:15. Let the reader understand because it's very complicated and it's a huge study in and of itself. And it goes all the way back to the book of Daniel. And it's a very long, complicated story uh, about a guy by the name of Antiochus of Epiphanes and, and how he had a religious system that he created that was part Jewish and then he this bizarre thing that he created and he created his own priest in this thing and, and it just desecrated the temple. And that's where you have, uh, in the historical Jewish um, world, you have the, the Maccabees who came in and through guerrilla warfare, um, they ended up conquering, unbelievably, this this huge military force. And they came in to dedicate the temple and they found they didn't have enough oil. And to purify the oil took several days. And that's where God did the miracle um, of, of making the oil last for eight days and thus you have Hanukkah. And uh, you, you have the, the story with the... the, the the candle on the, the the oil lasting and it 's a, a wonderful story, and again it 's it's, it's complicated, but um, let the reader understand and so in the book of Daniel is this story, and in this story, Daniel says, "You need to calculate the days, and he says at times times half a time it 's called the seventieth week of daniel, and notice here it 's forty two months three and a half years. Daniel mentions 1,260 days. In verse 3, he mentions that again. I will give power to my two witnesses. So now we're going into another important part of this, this three and a half year period. These two witnesses, they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And you say, well, why did he say 42 months in verse 2? And why did he say the same exact amount of time, 1,260 days, they're both three and a half years. Why did he do that? Again, in the book of Daniel, one of the things the Antichrist does is changes times and seasons. And so the calendar of the world has been based around glorifying Jesus. We have the Christmas time. Now it's called the winter break. We have Easter time. It's called the spring break. We're doing everything we can to try to not glorify Jesus. Well, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to even do that more. And I think he's going to totally weird out the calendar and and people are going to try to say, man, it's, I, I don't even know how to calculate it anymore. I mean, the Lord wants us to be aware of what's going on in the tribulation period and right in the middle of the three and a half year period is when the Antichrist is going to proclaim himself to be God and the Jews are warned by Jesus in Matthew uh, 24 verse 15 to 25 to, to flee and to get out of there and pray it's not in winter and pray you're not pregnant and, and all of these things. Um, but how are we going to figure that out? And he's giving him all these different calculations and, and I believe that's why he's saying don't, don't get fooled by the Antichrist when, the, when these things are happening. And in verse four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before God of earth. You say, what in the world? How can we ever know what that means? This is, again, these things are not the first time they're being written. They're just simply repeating, and you need to know. And of course, if you've been taught through Zechariah chapter four, he tells you about how God is building vessels That are going to just not have to go from a place of anointing to anointing. They're going to flow. And there's like this pipe coming out of the olive tree and it's going right into the menorah. And so there's just, there's no oil you don't have to take the olives and crush them and make the oil and you know get the oil prepared and you know get it purified and then pour the oil in there's just oil going right from the tree which again can't happen but it's a supernatural thing and th- he's now telling you the interpretation of Zechariah 4 the it, these two lamp stands that the olive tree where there's pipes coming out and just producing oil straight into them so they're always burning it's a supernatural burning of this flames are these two witnesses in verse 5 If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy and they have power over waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with plague, all plagues, as often as they desire. So, again, again, God is so merciful. He told us last time when he gave us a little interlude. He told us about the 144,000 anointed evangelist prophets, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel, who are going throughout the world with this amazing power to preach the gospel to the world. And now we have this nether little interlude saying, hey, by the way, why those 144,000 prophets are powered with God's spirit, going throughout the world, preaching the gospel, you have two guys in Jerusalem, and as we're gonna discover, the whole world can watch them all the time. (laughs) Now, let me just ask you, up until recently, we, we wouldn't have understood that. And I, You know, I've been preaching on this for 30 years, and I can remember preaching on this going, I don't know how, guys, but somehow the whole world's going to be able to watch them all at the same time. But now with satellites, and, and matter of fact, uh, right now, you, could, you can go online, and, and um, they have cameras on the welling wall continually running 24 hours a day seven, seven days a week so a lot of people when they go to Israel they'll say hey I'll be at the camera tomorrow at this time and I'll wave to you you know so they get on the, the the welling wall camera and you can go over there and also if you want there's there's companies that will write down a prayer for you and then they'll go and show you on the video and then they'll go put it in the welling wall for a fee um, in case uh, I don't know that empowers your prayer request or whatever but uh, um So this is, again, what we see, these two guys. And one of them sounds familiar to the the miracles of Elijah. The other one has miracles similar to Moses. And so some believe that one is Elijah and one is Moses because of this, that God actually says, hey, guys, you want to go down and, you know, be prophets for another three and a half years? And uh, they volunteer and come back. And um, that would, that's very interesting. Others believe that one is Enoch, because in Genesis it says he walked with God, a prophet of God, and he was not. He didn't die. And then remember Elijah was caught up in the fiery chariot, and he didn't die. And in Hebrews it says that it's appointed every man to die once, and then come judgment. So since these guys never died, they get to come back to earth and they have a chance to die. Well, yeah, it's not of necessity, because remember, there's some people that got raised from the dead, so it was appointed to them to die twice, (laughs) and then, of course, all of us in the rapture, which may happen tonight, we don't die, so hopefully there's millions of people that never die once, but, you know, 99.99% of the people will have died once, And then comes judgment. But it's not of necessity. You have this nice little clean thing, you know, with Enoch and Elijah, the two guys in history that didn't die and went to heaven, uh, that they come back now. But it it, it sort of works. But it doesn't tell us. But um, most commentators, most theologians believe one's Elijah and one's Moses. They come back. And either way, these guys are similar to those guys. And... uh, Notice what happens in verse seven, when they finish their testimony, the priest that ascends out of the bottomless pit, the beast, excuse me, that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So for a very long time, for three and three years, three and a half years, these guys are invincible. Nobody, anybody tries to kill them. Some sniper's trying to take them out. Whoosh, fire comes out of their mouth and just whoosh, turns them to ash. You know, some military force, some cannon, you know, or some tank comes around the corner. Whoosh, you know, devour the tank. They're just invincible. They can't be killed. And then the time comes where God says, okay, you're done. Your, your work is done. And then Satan comes in against the antichrist we know he's able to kill them and notice what happens in verse eight their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which spiritually is called sodom egypt where also our lord was crucified so um israel at times has been incredibly wicked and you say sodom and egypt well sodom sodom and gomorrah the place of god destroyed with fire because of its uh, perversity, interesting to this date, the largest gay pride parade is Tel Aviv, the amount of population of people coming to it, the largest one that's ever happened. And then Egypt, again, it's stubbornness, Pharaoh uh, against hardening his heart against God, that God's own people have been that way over and over again. And again, it makes it, takes all question away. It's Jerusalem he's talking about. And then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. Remember, uh, Lazarus was four days in the grave. Remember and Jesus said, hey, pull the stone away. And they're like, Lord, he stinketh. I love the old King James in those. Lord, he stinketh. And, uh, he, they moved the stone away and he raised Lazarus from the dead. So I'm sure after three and a half days in Jerusalem, uh, Lord, they stinketh. Uh, but nevertheless, after three and a half days, they're not allowed their dead bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell on the earth rejoice over them. Make merry. Send gifts to one another. Because these prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, guys, just really quick, remember... That the majority of the world is just hates God, hates Jesus. Remember, we saw at the end of last chapter, after these crazy beasts are out of the earth that have sting like scorpions, the size of horses, and all of this, and for five months they can't die. Remember, at the end of chapter nine, soon as the pressure was off with these. These crazy locust creatures. It says in verse twenty that all mankind they did not repent. Verse twenty-one, and they did not repent. And again, of what? Their murders, their sorceries, all their evil wickedness, and and so they're 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 doing all of this. The whole earth is like Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus says, the whole earth is like the days of Noah. When God destroyed the world with a flood, the hearts of man was evil continuously. And so Moses, when he stood before Pharaoh, well, these guys are going to be standing before the Antichrist and the whole world and saying, if you don't repent, you know, the whole world's water maybe for a time will turn to blood. If you don't repent, I'm going to destroy the crops of most of the world. And so these guys are standing before God able to bring these plagues on mankind, bring the frogs or whatever it is. And so the whole world is is just like Pharaoh, just hardens his heart doesn't want to repent no matter how many frogs there are, no matter how many lice there are, no matter how dark it is or whatever it is, the plagues they bring upon them. So when these guys die, the whole world's all right. We're tired of these guys who are turning our water to blood and bringing plagues and frogs and lice and whatever it is. And, And now in verse 11, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet You know, three and a half days. I just sort of picture like sort of a maggot coming out of one of their ears. You know, it's like, ah, brush that away. You know, Uh, I don't know why I picture those kind of things. But after three and a half days laying out there, I mean, come on. Um, It's going to be sort of a weird thing, don't you think? They're going to look a little pasty, I think. Um, But then all of a sudden, God breathes life and, and then... It says they stood on their feet and great fearful on those who saw them. So it's like, whoa, you know, look on the camera, see those two guys are dead, and all of a sudden they're coming up and believe me, that's going to make front page news. And then they heard the loud voice from heaven saying to them, "Come up here." And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemy saw them. In the same hour there was an earthquake. And the tenth of the city fell in the earthquake. 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe is passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And that brings us to the end of where we're gonna stop tonight. Radical stuff, huh? The temple that's being built and as we're gonna see the Antichrist, three and a half years, gonna proclaim himself to be God. At the same time that thing's being built, we have these two radical prophets prophesying, 144,000 radical prophets, uh, 12,000 reach out of Israel throughout the world. And then as we see all the various uh, seals that are broken, all the various destruction, a third of the sea, a third of land, and, uh, and so forth. Um, so hopefully you're able to go back and read and get the picture in your mind uh, of what's happening on earth during this time. And it's important in God's economy that we understand these things ahead of time. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you right now. And we do ask in Jesus' name as we go line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, that you would show us your heart, your mind. And as we see here, we still discover unique, interesting things about you. (laughs) Great is the mystery of godliness that God would put on earth, these two prophets. (laughs) Radical. Even in this time when man has already missed the rapture, the majority of the world's hardening their heart against you. You're still looking for the little tiny treasures in the field. You're still beckoning men to repent even though the majority of the world hate you and hate your prophets, hate your word. They're still just with all fervor. You're still working miracles to call men to yourself to repentance. As we just take a moment here in first and second Timothy it says in As we head towards the last days, that men will little by little not want to hear the Word of God. They want to heap up teachers to tickle their ears. And it's important if you're here tonight to realize that if you are not a believer and you turn your heart away from receiving the Lord tonight, that your heart's a little harder, that you're going to be a little more inoculated to come into Christ. And as we read through Revelation, the one thing we discover is you do not want to be here when all of this chaos is going on. And maybe tonight somebody has brought you here because they want you to hear the truth. And through this message tonight, you've heard the truth that you are a sinner and that your heart is hard and that you need to repent and turn to God that your sins can be forgiven and that your heart and your mind and your life can be lined up with the will of God. If that's you here tonight, just raise your hand and say, pray for me. I need to be born again. I need to be saved. I want my name written in the book of life. I I don't want to be here on earth or to go to hell. I want to, to go to heaven. Lord, we thank you for this night. We thank you again just for washing us in the water of your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful evening in the Lord. Bye-bye.